Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. Our guest tonight is Dr. Frank uh, Martius from the SETI Institute. And I'm real excited to talk to him about UAP, about uh, upcoming uh, an upcoming uh, telescope he was talking about briefly, and what's out there now, the Webb, the James Webb Telescope. I'm excited to talk about all of this stuff. Our blog this week from Charles Lear is Ufology and China. Can you explain to the audience your background? Well, my, I'm an astronomer. I'm a senior astronomer at the SET, at the SET Institute, um, an institution we search for life, any type of life in the universe. Uh, you probably know about the SET Institute and your audience as well. Oh, yes. uh, yeah. I started my career 25 years ago, even more, um, looking for um, uh, building instruments, ground-based telescope instruments with adaptive optics in the goal of uh, improving the image quality of telescopes. So starting with four-meter class telescope that went to eight, 10-meter class telescope like the Keck, the VLT, and the image planets, um, in our solar system, asteroids, fine asteroids with moons, etc. Then went to the exoplanet field to search for exoplanets, planets in orbit around other stars. And then uh, basically we went from that to, uh, I joined the institute, the SETI Institute, and I've been working there for more than 10 years now on developing instrument to search for life, developing instrument to search for Earth-like exoplanet from the ground, but also from space. And I'm also part of the outreach and communication team of the SETI Institute. So I talk a lot about our the search for life. But in fact, I'm going to confess something. I found a text okay. I wrote when I was 17 years. Um, I was um, kind of a hacker at the time. Uh, when I was, and, I built, uh, and I wrote a text that was part of a program and so on. Something complicated. But then I can read myself and I talk about the the Fermi paradox, and I talk about SETI and the importance of searching for life. So at 17, I was already focusing on, on doing this, but I don't think I ever dreamed that I will become an astronomer at the SETI Institute. Well, I was hoping you were going to say when you were 17, you had a UFO sighting. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot but, of stuff in the sky, yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but things that you've seen can be explained so far? or Yes, everything can yeah. be explained, yeah. Yeah, um, but and we're going to get into all that because I, I listened to you on another program. You're not closed-minded. Now, I had sort of, a, I would call it a debate with y your colleague, Seth Shostak, who is now 79 years old and still looks pretty young for that age. He's still, do he's mm -hmm. still right there working away, right? Yes, he's still, uh, yeah. we have meetings every week, in fact. With yeah, Seth, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, um, you know, he was, he was, I, I, after listening to you and talking with Seth, I would have to say that you're more open-minded to the possibility that at least something is happening. Um, I, I never like to say that it's aliens myself because I really feel that no one really knows for sure what that, what the strange objects are that people are seeing. But um, what do you think about that in general? And I, and one thing I sort of accused Seth of when he was on my show, I said, of course, if you said there's possible UFOs and it's possible they, some of them may be extraterrestrial somehow, then you would lose your funding, right? You know, I, I posed <laughs> that question to him. But um, so, so what do you think in general about um, at least what's going on? I, I, I know that uh, a new program was just set up with a better uh, acronym 
I think it's called AARO or something like that. It's about anomalous uh, research. Um, but anyway, uh, what do you think about all that in general? So I think what you're asking me is what I think about the recent activity in the UAPs, basically, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's more scientific look at it now than ever before. Yeah. So I'm, I'm part of the scientists that believe that it's interesting that, first of all, people pay attention to this. Um, people are interested in the, in the existence of UAPs and extraterrestrial civilization. I'm part of the generation who grew up with those people. And, uh, and uh, frankly, I met some of them and I do respect what they do. Some of them are extremely using scientific method to try to understand what's going on, building instruments, trying to do some recording and so on. So I think it's important that we, we let the people do their own investigation. Science should not be part only of the scientific community, or the people should be able to do science. Sometimes they shake uh, our ideas, and they bring some new ideas to the, to the field. So I do appreciate mm -hmm. that. I have no personal views about UAPs because I'm not part of these people who have done and studied those videos, for instance, those more recent videos. I believe... As scientists, we should pay attention to that. As scientists, we should bring our expertise to the studies of those videos, to the understanding of what's going on, what has been photographed, what has been filmed, especially in the most recent videos, especially those coming from military aircraft and so on, because those instruments are extremely similar to the instruments we are using on telescopes. So is there these people in the community that can bring expertise in understanding, analyzing those videos, they should be, uh, astronomers should be part of it. We should be part yeah. of this conversation and helping analyzing this, the, those observations. I have to tell you, and since you've been at this for a while, you, you probably would agree. Don't you think the needle has moved on that in the last three years or so? Uh, because yeah. before it was like such a taboo topic for any scientist. And now there's an organization I have a, a small involvement with, like the SCU, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Um, there's, and there, that's full of really great scientists that are really taking a hard look at this, which uh, I think is, is important. And I, you bring up a, a good point that a lot of times someone from the outside can, you know, maybe think out of the box a little bit uh, that may be able to help. A lot of discoveries, I'm sure, are made that, in that manner. Yeah. So. And, you know, the fact that NASA is, as, is putting together an UAP independent study group is the sign that the needle has moved. It's the right. sign that the needle has moved in a way that we need to give an answer to the people. I mean, we cannot be scientists living uh, in the bubble tower or hiding our, our head in the sand and pretending that nothing is happening. I mean, my kids talk to me about UAPs and, uh -huh. uh, and they, uh, they're teenagers. They, yeah. they want to know what's going on and that's normal. So we need to provide an answer and providing an answer will be done using the scientific method in my mind. And that's, uh, that's why this community, community that NASA is putting together is a very important step to our bringing answers and maybe exp bringing the ex experts around the table to understand what's going on. And, uh, you know, it, do you think it's possible that even with all the scientific instruments being used that we still may not be able to, even if we have really good data, we still may not be able to understand 
what's going on? Or do you think that that we definitely will? What was your thoughts on that? Well, my thought is that there is more than, I forgot the number, but 400 sites or 400 recordings of weird stuff happening in the sky. And we're probably going to spend years and probably get some explanation for three quarters or, or even yeah. more of them. And there will be still some which will be, remain mysterious. And yeah. in a way, they're mysterious because, they, uh, because we don't have an explanation yet. But don't forget that science evolved very quickly. And that's one of the reasons I, I like the fact that we have we putting together those scientists around the table. Because one of the problems we have is also that we don't have the tools yet to interpret this data properly. So having mm -hmm. those experts around the table will help getting those, the, those models to under, understand what's going on, to be able to analyze this data and provide a response. Whatever the response will be, we will have some, some measurements, some calculations. Right. Um, I think it was Jacques Vallée. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's out, he's out your way. He's in San Francisco, but he's been looking at this topic for many years. He's a computer scientist, but um, I think I may be misquoting him, but I think he said something along the lines where if we found out what they were, we may not even understand. And uh, I like that. And I also, he says something along the lines that, you know, it may be several things, all, all of, you know, not just, just, you know, not just extraterrestrial, but it could be all, all different types of things. Next week, I have Dr. Michael Masters on, who has a theory of time travel, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is another interesting aspect. I, I love to hear about all these different thoughts on what we may be seeing. But there really is, you know, I mean, when you see someone like David Fravor uh, talking about that TikTok, tic-tac encounter back in 2004 and a, a, a very credible witness um, along um, uh, there were some other people also I'm trying to remember uh, the name of the uh, female Alex Dietrich uh, also um, was uh, a wing woman during that and saw the same thing you know they all saw this together and you know when you get some Someone credible like that, and then you have all the data from that. Uh, it just seems like we should be able to crack something. And you know, when the, the data the data disappeared on that, I know that uh, uh, that it was taken by someone. I'm going to have Gary Voorhees on here in a couple of weeks. He's going to talk about exactly what happened during that encounter. So. Uh, that thing, this has been happening. I'm sure you're probably not aware of this, but for years, the government has taken away really good data away from a situation, away from, you know, from people. I don't know where it is, where it went, but uh, that has happened repet repeatedly over the years. All the way back, uh, Gordon, um, Gordon Cooper talks about um, when he was out in the desert, uh, he wasn't filming, but they were filming uh, a crew that he had was filming, you know, some test planes. And this UFO came and landed right there during the during the filming. So they got it on really good film. He brought it, had it developed. He actually saw it up to the light. He could see exactly what they were telling him about. But he had to ship that off. And that went to Washington like in a, with a courier. So the stuff has been going somewhere for all the way back since the late 1940s. And so, but I'm not saying, I'm not saying because it's been going somewhere 
uh, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but they probably have somewhere in the government or compartmentalized somewhere they have this data, but I don't think they know anything more about it than anyone else still. I mean, that's my thoughts about it. Yeah, just I, I don't know much about these data, but the fact that they exist and the fact that they have been stored somewhere um, means that they could be interesting. And maybe the fact that NASA will uh, request access to them may change the, the game here. Maybe we will have more of those uh, data revealed because scientific investigation have been done on them and scientists will come with uh, some kind of explanation. That's my hope. Um, again, I, I, I'm a true believer in transparency for science because that's the way we do progress. So yes. the game is changing, the rules are changing. And I think the yeah. public has been helping with that. And I'm glad that this is happening. Yes, uh, Lee Spiegel just said that was, uh, yeah, Gordon Cooper at Edwards Air Force Base, um, where that landing was. So I think that's, I think that's great. I think it's really great that, that uh, people like you do not uh, say, I don't know if you ever heard of Stanton Friedman. He's a uh, longtime ufologist. Uh, he used to say, uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is made up. You know, that's how a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people in the science field kind of touted that type of response because it was such a taboo subject. They didn't want to touch UFOs. You know, uh, now we call them UAPs. I don't know if it makes it anything better. Yeah. Do you do you ever use the term UAP and someone asks you what what does that mean, and then you have to say UFO? <laughs> yes, yes. It's uh... <laughs> yeah. and sometimes in French we say of me which is even more, more difficult. So, yeah, oh, we, uh, I oh, have well. to explain yeah. UAPs, UFO after. But yeah, it's the way we, we call them is not what really matters. It's what they are, exactly. which is very important. A rose is a rose, yeah. Um, yeah, so, well, this is, this is an, to me, this is an interesting conversation um, because I, I like what you, you're saying. You know, science is supposed to be open. You know, the discoveries are happening all the time. And I liked having Avi Loeb on the couple of times I had him on um, because he is open-minded and he said, we should have the curiosity of a child looking at these things, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you think about what is, is it dark matter makes up something like 90 something percent of the universe. We have no idea what that is. Right. I mean, yeah. So. It's, we, we still don't know a lot. We still don't know a lot in fact. And that's uh that's why it's great we send space telescopes and uh, take uh, Buldo's gigantic telescope and to realize that how much we don't know about our own universe. And we don't even know much about planets in our own solar system. We still don't know whether it is beneath the crust of, of ice of, Europe, of, ocean, of um, Europa and Ganymede, for instance. We have suspicion that there could be life there, microbiological life, but we still didn't go there. So... Yeah, I hope that I, yeah, I hope that someday, um, I know there's going to be some type of an observation of that moon, right? Uh, there's something being sent out there at some point. Yeah, there is two major projects. One is to launch uh, um, the Clipper Europa mission. It's basically a mission that's going to orbit around Europa and be able to analyze the um, the geysers, the gas coming out right. of, yeah. of the crust, through the crust. Uh, that's one, one mission. And for um, 
For Enceladus, uh, which is the moon of Saturn, there is this idea of sending a mission through the vent of the gas there and capturing crystal of ice because we know it's snow on the surface of this tiny moon and analyze those on board the telescope, on board the, 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 the robotic spacecraft to see if there is some kind of uh, biology happening in the surf, underneath the surface as well. So we are making progress. We are uh, developing instruments. We don't have yet the funding for some of those missions, specifically the one for Enceladus, but it may come. Right, right. So can you explain what your typical day at, at SETI when you're involved in doing something for SETI, what, what, is, what is that like? Um, so I manage a group of multiple scientists who work on specifically on the unistellar network I don't know if you are familiar with this. No? Unistellar. I'm sorry, what is it? Unistellar. Unistellar, yes. Yes. Yeah. Those are the stellar. I have one telescope behind me here. Um, so those ah. are net, uh, telescopes that people can get, uh, purchase for themselves, which are telescopes which are extremely powerful, digital smart robotic telescopes that everybody can use. And with this telescope, uh, we have a partnership with the SETI Institute. So we basically, at the SETI Institute, we can send alert to the entire network of those tiny telescopes around the world, and they observe things happening in the sky for us. So Unistellar um, is a private company, and SETI Institute is the scientific uh, institution for this project. So if there is a comet happening in the sky, like right now there is Comet K2, I can send a notification and people not uh, record the observation and send us the observation and we can create a super image of this comet by combining all the data. So we're creating a community of uh, citizen oh, astronomers. Wow. And they basically help City Institute's researchers to do research, which could be planetary defense to help defending the planets, comet activity, cometary activity. It could be as well uh, transiting exoplanets you can detect uh, Jupiter-sized exoplanet transiting stars using this telescope. So we and of course we're ready for the unexpected. If something happening in the sky and we want to characterize it quickly, I can just basically send an alert through our Slack channel. We have 1,000 observers right now, and they will be wow. able to observe it. It will be night somewhere on this planet, and they will be able to observe what's going on. So this is one of the one of the big outreach scientific project of the SETI Institute, and I'm the lead of this project, um, and we have multiple scientists doing this. So doing this implies uh, basically get uh, communicating to the public, uh, involving as, uh, citizen astronomers, making sure they observe. Uh, we have a robotic smart pipeline that processes the data almost in real time. So they get quickly the result of the observations. So we are creating this community of eyes capable of observing the sky 24-7 using this, uh, the net, this network. Amazing. That's amazing. That's really great. That's really great. Before we move on, I just want to go back quickly to uh, dark matter, if I could. And my question is, um, do astronomers kind of like kick around, you know, when they're like, I don't know, golfing or out at a bar or something like that, their thoughts and what the possibilities 
I know no one really knows what it is, but uh, what are some of the possibilities that people kick around that you've heard of what dark matter may actually be? So that's not my feel at all. So okay. I'm not going to be, uh, I just going <laughs> to say that one of the most radical ideas that we have about dark matter, dark matter is that in fact dark matter is not, does not exist. What ex dark matter is here to show that the fact that we don't understand the structure of the universe. So yeah. dark matter That's probably is making, not, yeah, is, that probably makes more here. sense. Yes. It probably makes more sense <laughs> because I, I know, you know, Einstein's theory and, and, and um, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. You know, when they're, the, it's moving away, the red, uh, what's it called? Yeah, the red shift. Mm -hmm. The red shift. Yeah. And stuff like that. But uh, it's so hard to understand uh, everything. And like you said earlier, you know, we're making discoveries all the time. Science is always making new discoveries. And I think the saying, um, I'm trying to remember um, who it was that they, the saying goes something like, we, we know what we know is a drop and what we don't know is an ocean. And that's like a real old saying, you know, it's uh, hundreds of years old. That's probably true. And what yeah. I often say when I explain science to, uh, to people is that science is not an answer. It's an approximation. So that's mean. What I meant by that is that when you, the theory we built, are basically an attempt to reflect the reality. But the reality mm -hmm. is probably more complex than what we 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 can perceive, uh, human being. So that's the reason we have very complex now theory of the of the structure of the universe, and we have been trying to to basically. Uh, um, study them using the LHC and so on, and they fit more or less. The existence of the boson of X and so on seems to fit the theory. But now we are noticing already uh, using the LSC, the Large Hadron Collider, some slight variation in the theory. And those slight variations are truly what is interesting because they hmm. implies that we, we have an approximation of the reality so we, we need to build better theory to really encompass and understand the structure of the universe. So that's why science is always an approximation which evolve over time and get better and better, I hope. So yeah. one day we will fix this problem of the dark matter. One day we will understand that this dark matter is maybe an interaction with particles from another kind of dimension that we don't perceive. I don't know. I'm making up stories here. But we will probably evolve. And this evolution is important in science. Science should be always moving forward and always yes. changing. And the only way you I, can do that is by being challenged all the time. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and let go of your beliefs if they're wrong. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I would like to talk uh, about the James Webb Telescope. I was really excited about that. I actually got to see it down at Goddard Space Center when it was being built. Uh, well, I was there around 2017, I think, or earlier. And, um, you know, they started it. It started out as a billion-dollar project. Then it was a $3 billion project. And then, uh, but it's so complicated because of how they had to get this thing up in space and not have any problems. I know there was something like 344 first point 
um, failures or something like that mm -hmm. before launch. But I mean, the, the mirror is what gets me. The mirror is like a, a mirror that's stacked together. I saw the, I saw the mirror when they had it out when I was down there. And, um, but it had to be stacked on top of each other. And then it's, uh, it's just crazy how it, it, it goes out a, a million miles in space and unfolds itself. And then the tennis court size shield goes out. Everything went exactly the way it was supposed to, which is really amazing. And now it can be out there for something like 20 years and not uh, with the amount of fuel because everything went so smoothly, which I think is fantastic. So uh, were you following on that all along when that launched and everything? Yeah. And in fact, the Unistellar network that I mentioned uh, follow it. We follow the entire JWST from the take from the launch almost all the way to when you reach the Lagrange point. So we have data that show the opening of the sun shield, the opening of the ah. primary mirror has been detected using our, our telescope. And this oh is done goodness, with wow. a community wow. of 50 people around the world, 50 observers, 57 exactly, observe that. And we have the data to show this. And we also see the glint of the solar panel from time to time when the orientation was perfect. We see as well that they locate the telescope in a way that it was spinning on itself in six hours. So those are data that we collected with this telescope and basically uh, been very useful for NASA uh, to know as what's going on. We hope that in the future when the telescope is being uh, has some issue for its time, they will position it the same way that it was when they launched it to the Lagrange point, and we can take the same measurement and see, for instance, some variation of light due to the degradation of the sun shield or the primary mirror. I don't hope for that, but it may happen. So we basically have collected the data that will be the standard to analyze and to understand the, um, the way JWST behaves. There so, are so yes, many things that could this. have gone. Yeah, yeah. Go There's so many things that could have gone wrong, and it's just amazing that uh, it went so smoothly. I mean. I'm sure everyone was breathing a sigh of relief when that, when that launched, yes. first of all, I mean, you know, yeah. Everybody. Uh, here's a question. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question um, about the James Webb telescope that came in from chat. Will the Webb telescope uh, be able to look at what object is influencing Neptune's orbit? Are you familiar with that? Yes, yeah, so we, um, with the, the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to observe in the mid-infrared, far-infrared. So it means that it will be able to observe very distant objects in our own solar system. Um, the, uh, the reason for this is because when they're far, they are basically cold because solar system body don't emit light. They just simply reflect light. So if they're far away from the sun, they have extremely cold temperatures. They reflect light. They emit light, which is mostly in the infrared. So we, we hope to be able to use the JWST to truly understand the outer part of the solar system, understand what's going on beyond the orbit of Neptune, detect even larger trans-Neptunian objects. We, we know a few of them which are 1,000 kilometers or less, 300 kilometers uh, around the sun, and we know that is significantly more because we see perturbation in this complex family. So the JWST will probably find some of them or at least help us to understand what they are, what they do in terms of rotation um, on themselves, their size, 
if there are moons, etc. So it's going to be a game changer for us to basically be able to use this telescope to study the outer part of the solar system. Uh huh. Now the the James Webb also um, has a way to possibly detect if there's life on um, you know on a um, an Earth like planet. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. There's one that's a system that's 40 light years away. Trappist. What's it called? Trappist one. Trappist one. Trappist one is one uh, of the targets. Yeah. Three, yeah. Uh, three, three Earth-like planets around there. Now, can you explain to the audience how James Webb may be able to detect? I know it has to do with uh, reflect uh, the planet going in front of the sun and all that, can, and yeah. the atmosphere, right? So, JWST was not designed to directly image exoplanets. It will, but that's not really what is going to be able to do the most. It's going to be able to analyze the atmosphere of a planet when the planet is passing between us and the host star. So when the, star, the planet is passing in front of the star, the light of the star slightly decreases in intensity. It's very small, and we're talking about less than a percent, definitely. And, but JWST will be also able to analyze the, sh the drop of uh, brightness and see the color of this drop. And by looking at the color of this drop, it will be able to analyze the composition of the atmosphere of those planets. So one of the big projects we have with JWST is to observe those planets which orbit around the star and are in the habitable zone, in the zone where you expect to find water, and be able to analyze the atmosphere of those planets. If we see, for instance, the presence of gas, simil gas is similar to what you see on Earth, it may imply that this planet is very similar to our own planet. I'm talking about detection of nitrogen, O3, uh, carbon, carbon dioxide, etc., uh, etc. Et if we see the same composition, chemical composition in this, in this planet, we may say, wow, there is life, and life similar to our on this planet. And we have no guarantee that it will work, but we, uh, we are starting the search using this uh, space telescope. And so I know that... Um, SETI is using the radio telescopes, I believe, um, the array and all that. But how ex exactly are, the, I, I know the wow signal, I can't, when was that, 1979 or 1980 or whenever mm -hmm. it was? Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. But how is SETI looking besides radio signals? What are the other ways is, is SETI trying to detect life out there? So there is multiple way I could talk about this for hours, but let me just tell you that one of the major way we are doing, we are developing new instruments to search for lasers coming from civilizations. So you can expect that if a civilization slightly more advanced than us, let's take 10, 20 years more advanced, will probably communicate essentially using lasers because it's, it's a better way, it's faster, can send more data, etc. So if they know we are here, because they there's already this dev, this uh, use and developed a new space telescope, they will basically be able to use their lasers point towards us to tell us we are here. Well, if they do that right now, there is very few chance that this will be detected because almost nobody is looking for laser gar laser spots in the sky. 
So CETIs developed what we call the laser SETI array, uh, which is an array that observes the entire sky 24-7. We have one station in California, a second one in Hawaii, and we're going to open multiple stations around the world so we can completely cover the entire sky and see continuously there is a laser pulse coming from an intelligent civilization who simply wants to tell us we are here and we want to communicate. So this looks like science fiction, but it's happening right now. Um, that's one, one project, which is the search for techno signatures. And then at SETI Institute, in fact, a lot of us, I would say more than 70 scientists, do work in the search for life in our solar system by helping developing instruments that will be able to dig underneath the surface of Mars, see in the cave of Mars whether or not there is life, or stands, so Enceladus that we mentioned, or Europa, etc. And a very large proportion of those scientists are now developing instruments capable of discovering and analyzing, in a few, uh, analyzing the atmosphere of exoplanets. Because exoplanets are really truly the next the next uh, terra incognita in astronomy. We know that there is two exoplanets in average in our galaxy. There is 400 billion stars in our galaxy. So that's a lot of mm. planets. And we know mm. that 30% of those planets have liquid water. So that means there is a lot of potential habitable world over there in our galaxy. So now we need to use those instruments that will be able to see or to detect the presence of life on those exoplanets. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you for an opinion. I know sci scientists don't like to give opinions too much, but um, what do you think, how comfortable would you be in saying that you're 100% certain that there's got to be life out there? So, <laughs> you got me here. <laughs> so, I will never say I'm 100% certain about something. Uh, even okay. uh, even in yeah. life, I will, I yeah, will yeah. never say that. But yeah. what motivates me in my research is the belief that there is a life elsewhere. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I could not be working at the SETI Institute without believing that there is life elsewhere. The likeliness yeah. of having no life in our galaxy outside our own planet, it's so small that it's impossible, I would say. So that's my yeah. main motivation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I agree. I mean, it, life. I mean, if you look where we find life on this planet in impossible places, and life really fights to be here, you know. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it would fight to be uh, anywhere. Uh, someone, when you were talking about your telescope program, the one you have behind you there, someone wanted to know um, how they could get involved in that program. So, uh, is that the Unistellar program? Yes. We talk a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, the idea is simply to, to purchase a telescope. Uh, we do have, uh, we, we have distributors around the world. Uh, you can also go on our website, unistellar.com. Uh, we'll put the, the link somewhere after. And uh, you can get this telescope. And as soon as you get this telescope, you learn how to use it for observation in your house, show galaxies, nebulae, and so on. But then later on, when you feel ready, you basically on the app, there is, an, uh, there is a tiny button to say, join the citizen science project or something mm -hmm. like that. And you basically mm -hmm. get from us an invitation 
to join the Slack channel, to get notification when something is happening in the sky. And then you become citizen scientist. Oh, how about that? Well, that's really interesting. And that link is in the show notes for anyone that's listening to this. You can go to our website, Podcast UFO, and it's right in the show notes for this particular one. Uh, Mary always has great questions. And you said something about defending the planet. So she wanted to know, um, she wanted to know what you're defending the planet from. <laughs> ah, the planetary defense program is defending yeah. the planets against asteroid impact. It's not as oh, exciting as defending. <laughs> uh, yeah, no aliens. I, I, no aliens. I think that's extremely important. Um, you know, I don't. I, I think that's very important because you know it's happened before, and it could certainly happen uh, again. It's 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 scary that we're not you know not really protected from asteroids and. Uh, you know, we could, you know, we saw that happen at Chelyabinsk, um, you know, yep. several years ago. And that was, that was just a small bus sized one. But I mean, you have something four miles long that is hidden by the sun and all of a sudden is coming right at us. You know, what do we do? What do you think yeah. the future of that is? Well, uh, there is something important as well is that if we want to find intelligent life elsewhere, we need to basically live enough in time because we basically start in the search recently. Only 35 years, we observe like a few hundred million stars. If you want to observe the 400 billion star and the 3 trillion galaxies, that's going to take a long time. So my idea is that the development of technology of civilization also depends on the survival. Meaning that if we want to be, become an advanced civilization, we need to have a planetary defense program. Because it will happen that an asteroid will impact our planet. It will happen, maybe not tomorrow, it will happen in 200 years, but we need to have a way to, to, to know that this is, when this is going to happen and how to mitigate this. Any intelligent civilization in our galaxy probably already is facing the same issue and they already developed this if, they were, if they're more advanced than us. So that's part, I think, on an evolution of a technological civilization to be able to do this, to divert an asteroid to save uh, the biosphere of its, of its planet. Right. Now, if we didn't have Jupiter, we'd be in a lot more trouble than we are, right? I mean, yes, that's uh, the shield of Jupiter has been extremely useful to protect us against comets specifically coming from the distance, distant Oort um, cloud. So we should thank Jupiter every day for being the planet that protected us against this disastrous impact. Uh, uh -huh. uh, hang on just a minute. I have, I'm trying to understand. I have an astronomer texting me here, a friend of mine. And um, I'm, I think, uh, oh, he has uh, some remote telescopes. I'm trying to get this, what he's trying to say here. Um, maybe, maybe I'll ask him to, uh, to call in and mm -hmm. if, if he can, um, let me, let me just, uh, do you mind if I bring on a, a friend? No, go ahead. She's a friend. Yeah. No right. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's <laughs> see if I can do this. Um, I'm going to just invite him on. If he can come on, he'll come in. Uh, he's listening. And he has a, oh, I don't think he can come on. But anyway, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you his question later when I understand exactly okay. what, 
<laughs> what he was saying. But, uh, but um, people, you are welcome to pose some questions in the chat. Um, and are we only, here's one here, are we only looking for exoplanets in our own galaxy? I mean, that's, that's the only capability we have at this point, right? If you go out, oh, here comes, here comes Mark right now, my friend Mark just joined us, but go ahead and answer that if you would. We, so we, we, have we no... just started searching for exoplanet outside of our galaxy and we think oh, we really? found some one of them outside of our galaxy, um, but we cheated. We basically uh, observe a galaxy which has been kind of uh, absorbed by our own galaxy and we found a planet around one of those stars. Wow, that's but, kind of exciting, yeah. yeah. So yeah. having other planets in a, uh, planets in other galaxies is important because we may not maybe other galaxies don't have the same number of planets that we are, we have in our Milky Way. All right. Well, uh, actually, Mark is just Mark D'Antonio is an astronomer, and he is just Mark. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you? Hey, Mark. How you doing? Uh, uh, hi, Mark, Frank. How are you? Uh, so me, hi. Frank. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, you you were trying to send me a question. So yeah. I thought, well, maybe it's better just to have you. Oh, you're on your phone. That's that's cool how you did that. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, it makes it. There's our there's our East Coast telescope there. Um, listen, one of the questions I had was, uh, Frank, was, um, you know, obviously I've been a proponent of SETI. I I I've, uh, I included quotes actually from Seth in our book. You know, the, but the question I wanted to ask was. Um, you know, we have an observatory uh, here on the East Coast. We have one on the West Coast. Um, and they're remote systems. I run them from here. Mm -hmm. And um, the building out in Arizona actually has room for two more systems. Um, and we have one system in there now. Um, but if, if it was something that was required, needed, or as a test site, a beta site, something to test some software... Um, I'd be willing to, to do an installation out there of, of equipment for SETI to try and actually further the cause. Because I think the search for lasers is actually wow. intelligent. <laughs> That's a very smart idea because we're doing that now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're using lasers now to do simple ranging stuff, yep. right? And you, I, I've, I've built circuits to modulate sound into lasers as well. Uh, I could shine a laser in a window and listen to the conversation going on in the room from hundreds of feet away. I guess that's kind of a bug, right? <laughs> but still, it was a test, you know, and those things work. So I would think that another civilization might actually do that. I like the idea very much. Well, we should put you in contact with uh, Elliot Gillam. He's the director of the Laser City Project. And in fact, he's looking for sites around the world to, uh, okay. to set up this, uh, this instrument. So... Yeah, definitely. We, uh, as I mentioned, we have a site right now in Hawaii, another one in, uh, in California, but he wants to grow the network because we want to take advantage of the rotation of Earth. So having bases separated by uh, 2,000 kilometers all around Earth will allow us to have a full coverage of the sky. Okay, that might actually, uh, that might be best suited them for the Connecticut site. Uh, in the eastern yeah. United States that we have, and not, not maybe not Arizona, um, but the eastern site, you know, where we're doing the building, um, and uh, that telescope, I just rehabbed it, and that's going to go in there, but we're also going to have a room for other systems. So uh, that'd be pretty cool. And the nice thing oh, is yeah. it, won't be, it won't be too dependent on, on light pollution, you know, for, uh, for that 
project, I don't think. So that would be kind of cool. Yeah, wow. since we are I can't believe for how laser, this, uh, we're looking at phono yeah. monochromatic lights. So that's that does work yeah. in in uh, if you don't have if you have a bunch a bunch of light pollution. Yeah, it'll work anywhere. Here we are. That's very cool. Wow, I'm glad this this kind of worked out and it's all live. So that's great. Well, you know, Martin, well, you're, you're you're a good guy, you know, and and uh, <laughs> you know, I like listening to your shows. Well, anyway, thank you, Frank. It was nice to meet you. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, and and maybe, touch. maybe, yeah, maybe he can. Yeah, I'll connect you. Contact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. All right, guys. Take care, Mark. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. Well, that would be great if something like that worked out. Definitely. You see. Yeah. You sure has been extremely useful for science. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. So let's talk about. Let's jump over to um, Amua Mua Amua Mua. Uh, so I had, yeah. I've, yeah, I have a little trouble with that sometimes, but I remember I told you in the beginning, I had Avi Loba on a couple of times and I think that's great that he has, um, an open mind and, you know, I know he's really stirred up a lot. Um, uh, there's been a lot of controversy about his thoughts on the possibilities, but I think it's great that he's open to the possibility that it could be something important and, and, you know, uh, um, uh, an antique, I, you know, dead spacecraft or something of possibilities, you know, and the thing that we always think of when we think about that is that rock that someone did a graphic of, but from the way it reacted as it went by um, the sun, it, it's probably really thin, something really mm -hmm. thin. Um, so what do you, what do you think about that whole situation? So, the, one of the major issues we have with Mwamwa is the fact that we detected it after he passed the sun. And that's a problem. We basically don't have enough data point, not enough observation of this body. He does exhibit some kind of weird um, non-gravitational acceleration, which is basically the idea is that he's not following up in a very perfect orbit that you expect uh, considering the, the presence of the sun. There is some slight deviation, like if he was blown away by something. Okay. We have seen that on other solar system bodies. We have seen that on comets. We have seen that on asteroids that outgas, etc. And uh, we have now discovered that uh, some asteroids have some kind of volcanic activity. This is a beast that's coming from another planetary system with a composition that may be very different to what we have in our own solar system. So I don't want to undermine heavy, heavy theory, but in my mind, this is the problem. The problem is that we don't have enough data. It's coming from very far away from us, very different. So maybe he has a very weird behavior. And we will not know that until we go back to try to catch on him and see him have a, a mission that basically visits Umuamua. And that's going to be very difficult because he's far away already. Yeah. Or if we find another, another one soon enough and we study it. Theoretically, uh, models show that we should have one visitor, interstellar visitor like that, every year. We saw Borisov uh, two years later, if I remember. Mama was in 2017, Borisov was in 2019. Uh, we are building telescopes, the Vera Rubin telescope, that will be able to cover the entire sky, the southern sky, every three days and we have the sensitivity to see objects like this early enough. Wow. So we are making progress in science to be able to see them. So I'm getting ready. In fact, 
Every time someone asks me what kind of instrument you want to uh, install on these next space telescopes or on these next ground-based telescopes, I always say something that will be able to characterize an Oumuamua-like object. So we have data to understand truly what's going on. I'm talking about mid-infrared spectra to see the composition of the surface, uh, visible light, sensitive enough to, to follow their body all the way until they leave and when they arrive. So all of this, it's important. It's, we really need to have more instruments capable of observing the entire sky 24-7. And this is coming. LSST is one of them. We have the ZTF. We have multiple surveys like that, uh, Atlas. So we are getting better. So my answer is, let's wait for another Oumuamua before jumping into conclusion for this one. And let's see, maybe it will be very different. Maybe we have this weird gravitational acceleration. And once again, let's have an open mind on this and do some proper studies so we understand what this body could be. Did I see that there's some type of an association between SETI and the Galileo project that Avi Loeb started? Some type uh, of connection. Seth, yes, Seth is oh, maybe part it's of Seth, the board. Seth, Seth yeah. Shostak is, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And, and what type of uh, contribution are they looking from? So Seth himself is, not, he's not, not SETI. It's not SETI. separately it's from SETI. Seth. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's all very interesting. Um, I'm just looking here. We have about five minutes left to the show. So, um, so what do you think? Um, you, you said on another show that you think within 10 years we're, we're going to find um, life. I don't think you said intelligent life, but do you think the odds are just as high that there's intelligent life out there? Um, you know, I, I know everything has to start microbial, you know, like yeah. everything has to start small and evolve, but still, um, you know, we, we have, the odds are out there that there's intelligent life and possibly much higher intelligent life than we have here. Yeah, and also, I mean, intelligent life is something that may, may need to be better characterized. Meaning that uh, if we are looking for biological intelligent life like ours, we're probably restraining significantly our search to planets like Earth orbiting around G-type stars, sun-like stars, that receive the same kind of light, so have the same kind of visit vegetation, and has involved in the same way. Frankly... This kind of life probably don't have very, there is very small percent of that. If you want to find life, like big life, any type of life, we will have to learn, to learn more and understand more what is life. So that's one of the reasons I'm really pushing for us to start building those new space telescopes, like UVORX is the code name we have. It's a six meter class telescope that will be a ball with an adaptive optic system in the sky that we're able to take images of planets. We're not talking about transiting, wow. nothing like this here. You see it up, an image of a planet. For an astronomer, an image is a dot. I'm just don't get too excited, Mark. It's <laughs> just a <laughs> tiny dot. But that's enough for us because one dot yeah. with the color and the motion of the dot, the variation of light give us a lot of information about the planet whether or not the planet has, has an ocean, the composition of the planet, whether the planet has a desertic area, 
um, crow fields, all of this. The planet, we, with an image, we get significantly more information than seeing the shadow of the planet. So, oh, yes. we, That's um, excellent. Yeah. UVOIX is the top priority of the decadal survey of, um, of NSF NASA. So that means that if we will have funding in the next 10, 20 years to build this instrument, to build this instrument. Wow, that will be amazing. I just wanted to show uh, for, the, for the listener, this is a very interesting image from the Webb telescope. And that's like, that's like a nebula, right? It's not like a, that's like the birth of stars right there. Uh-oh, I'm, I'm not hearing you. Did we lose your audio? We may have lost your, your audio. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we have to wrap in a minute, uh, less than a minute anyway. So uh, you can wave to the audience, but thank you so much. It was really a, a pleasure. pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed it. There you are, you're back, yes. Thank you. Well, we have to wrap anyway, but I want to thank you so much for your, for your, uh, being on the show tonight. Thank you very much. All right. You take care. And uh, hopefully you'll be the one that uh, discovers life out there. I hope you do. <laughs> I will be back. All right. I will be back. <laughs> yeah, you can come back. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye now. All right, everyone. So we'll be back next week. Uh, we have Dr. Michael Masters. Should be a good show. Thank you so much for watching. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Mm -hmm.